Hello and welcome to another edition of Dr. Duck After Dark, number 10. And today we're going to talk about inflation. And I've called it inflation, an encounter with a legend. And more of that a little later. So there's a lot of talk at the moment about inflation and deflation. You know, what's ultimately going to come out and win? So let's dive in. We're going to look at some data and then we're going to talk about all sorts of different monetary theory, how it all comes together. We're going to get some equations out. So there's going to get technical, but you've got to understand the technical bits to understand the system. So first of all, let's just look at some you know high level data. So I don't think there's much debate that in the short term, we're seeing de deflationary forces because there's a gigantic lack of demand uh, due to the lockdowns. So, uh, you know, now the market obviously is trying to look through that. So not just so for 2020, you know, deflationary forces seem fairly obvious. The question is, of course, what happens after that in 2021, 22? So if we look at the you know, classic thing you look at, uh, the five-year break-even inflation rate expectations. So you look at the delta between the five-year treasuries and the five-year tips. So right now, this is at 0.8%. Um, it's very much an in-between number. Um, before COVID, this number was generally about 1.5 to 2% in the last year or so. Uh, it, it formed a bottom at about 0.2% in March. So that was when the uh, markets were, were crashing, as in the stock markets. In fact, all markets were crashing at one point. So right now, you know, this isn't telling us a massive amount. Yes, it's been trending up from the low, uh, but that's just really following, as far as being objective, I think, just following that, you know, there's been obviously some risk on appetite in the last um, uh, month, month and a half. You know, and that tends to correlate with expectations for inflation. Now, if we look at the hard data, um, so... Uh, let's look at the US first of all. So things like PPI, this is producer price index, it was minus 1.2% year on year in April. Um, so it's a minus. This is the prices coming out of factories in effect. So this is a leading indicator of consumer prices. Uh, the inflation rate itself, uh, bearing in mind there are like about 3 million different ways of calculating inflation in every country in the world, and the US is no exception. Um, but if I just take the Inflation rate year on year was 0.3% uh, in April. Uh, this used to be above 2% in throughout 19. Uh, so it was between 1% and 2%, actually, this one. Um, if we look at export prices, minus 3.6% year on year in April. Import prices, minus 6.8% year on year. Again, these are all pointing to, um, in the short term, you know, clearly inflation is decreasing. Whether CPI goes negative... I think this shows that it will. Um, but again, that's not the key thing. What really matters in investing is getting the long-term shifts in inflation right. And that means what happens in 2021, 2022. Oil, of course, we've talked about as being, well, it's still pretty much half the level it was pre-COVID. It obviously went, well, it didn't really go negative. That was a technical thing. But you know, oil's a lot lower than it was in 2019. Um, the big exception at the moment is food. Food prices are up 3.5% uh, year on year in the US. This is due to supply shortages. You know, we've all heard about workers in, say, meat processing factories getting infected, the factory shuts down. This causes a lack of supply. You know, food has a very constant demand, whether you're eating out or eating at home. Humans are consuming about the same amount of calories. So. Um, and, and the data in Asia and Europe is very, very similar. 
um, you know, you, you've had um, generally negative uh, PPIs uh, and import export pricing everywhere. Um, and um, but again, that's showing kind of what's happening right now in the next few months. I don't really think there's any debate that in the next two, three months, we're going to have masses of inflation. Um, you know, uh, and I think people like Peter Schiff, who very much you know, talk about um, massive inflation coming again, like I don't think he thinks in the next month or two, you're going to see hyperinflation. And, you know, um, it, it's a medium to longer term view if that's coming. And by the way, it may not come. And that's the whole point of this podcast, because this is really the number one thing you need to get right in investing. If you can get whether we're in an inflationary or deflationary, i.e. is inflation trending upwards, is the rate of change positive or negative? It doesn't really matter if it's actually in deflation, i.e. negative. It's about the rate of change. That's what matters, Um, because it completely um, changes what... um, asset allocations you would have. So that's the big question. So I think we can probably all agree 2020 is going to see deflationary forces. Now, will they stick or not uh, towards the end of the year? Will we start seeing inflation come in? Okay, so if you just turn on the mainstream media, and I know I always bash them, but I bash them because they don't do their work. You'll just hear that the Fed has a $7 trillion balance sheet now. This must be inflationary because they're printing money. Lots of statements there that are not necessarily true. But let's just look through all the different markets right now. You know, Equity markets, they're clearly believing we're going to see some form of inflation. We're still in the middle of the biggest demand shock we've ever seen. And equities have... Well, much over well they're not back to their um pre-covid highs but they're 70 percent of the way you know so they're, they're giving a pretty strong signal oil is clearly not so sure uh it is what well, one would argue it's pretty bearish i mean it's it's a much lower level than it was soft commodities uh, things like copper uh, there's no signals there that we're you know we're going to suddenly see large demand for stuff like copper we've talked about food as an anomaly right now due to supply um, you know, gold has been doing well. That generally signals lower real rates. Uh, lower real rates uh, basically would be a combination of inflation and lower nominal rates. Um, or you could have very low nominal rates and some deflation. Yeah, it, it's you need the Fisher equation there. Um, so look, look that up. I've talked about it before. And if we look at bonds... Um, Clearly, rates, uh, nominal rates, are lower than pre-COVID. So, you know, before, if we if we look at the end of uh, nineteen, the ten-year was, I mean, you know, it was in this kind of one point five to two percent kind of band. The thirty-year, two to two and a half percent. You know, clearly we're much lower than that now. But it hasn't kind of gone to zero, which you know many people would think. And if the bond market thought, yeah, you know, it's dead cert that we're going to see deflation in the future, uh, th- those uh, yields would be probably pretty much zero. I mean, let's bearing in mind, you know, Germany is at negative half a percent pretty much across the curve. And, you know, know, there are countries in Europe, um, the likes of, say, Portugal, that there is no way they're the same risk than something like the the, the US when it comes to their bonds. But their bonds are priced broadly the same yields. And they're not even the world's reserve currency. so. So very mixed signals from the market, which probably shows there's no... 
definitive answer here. Now, one can one still has to build a thesis and take a view, or one could have the views. I just don't know. Let's either be in cash or in um, you know a broad variety of different assets to kind of hedge. Um, and by the way, if there is, well, it's not going to be super sudden, but let's say there is a bunch of inflation, like actually just being in cash is not going to be good for you. If it's deflationary, being in cash would be good for you. So, you know, I'd probably always prefer some form of kind of hedged approach here because rule number one of investing is don't lose money. And if you do, minimize it. If you go down 50%, you've got to go up 100% to get back where you started. I think, by the way, rule number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten should just be ignore everything you see on Twitter from people who are basically marketing themselves. But, okay, so let's approach it logically. And, you know, no framework is perfect here. Uh, but I think we can right some wrongs, and there is some disinformation out there. First of all, there's been roughly 35 million jobs lost in the US. Not all of these are permanent. No one knows what percent will be permanent. Anyone that says they know doesn't know. They're either lying or deluded. Um, but what we can look at is in a normal recession, you tend to lose about 5 million jobs. More in 2007-8, yeah, less in some of the lighter recessions, but about 5 million. So that would need about 80% of these job losses. And we're not done yet. I mean, continuing claims comes out today. It might be, you know, it's probably still going to be trending upwards. So we need about 80% of these jobs to, to immediately go back to work, uh, to just be at where we would be at the worst point of a normal recession. Okay, well, I think that sounds pretty implausible if I'm looking at probabilities. Um, you know, with uncertain demand, there's clearly not, there's no certainty of demand in the future. There's obviously uncertainty. No one knows. So you cannot have certainty. You can have your view that demand will come back, but there's no certainty. And when employers, well, normally when employers want to hire, they want certainty. I've run um, or started five businesses um, and yeah, some very small, some a bit larger. And yeah, you're not just going to hire people back um, on a whim. Also, a lot of the small businesses which, who have been really destroyed in this um, um, bad um, pandemic environment, um, you know, most of the surveys I've been seeing say roughly a third are just going to shut up shop. And this is in different countries. Spain had the same data. Facebook did a bit survey in the US. Quite consistent around that number. Of course, we don't know what the number will be. But even if it's much better, even if it's half and only one in six small businesses shut, well, they employ half the world. So that's still roughly 8% of the world, right? Losing their job. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure people have necessarily thought all this through. But again, we don't know for sure. You know, maybe everyone will suddenly go back, start eating out and things like this. But again, if you look at data from China, which is the furthest ahead in all of this, discretionary spending is down. People are not eating out in restaurants. Restaurants have social distances in place. This has ramifications for real estate pricing, you know, all sorts of stuff. So what's the big idea in all of this? So what I want to focus on for the rest of this podcast is really how does the money supply, monetary base, velocity of money, money multiplier all come into this? These are terms you hear a lot. I want to try and explain them. And we are going to use equations. And I'm not going to apologize for that. If you can't be bothered to understand some incredibly simple equations, which a 12-year-old can understand, then you shouldn't bother investing. Um, and I mean a 12-year-old. These things are as complicated as one thing multiplied by another. That's it. Um, and I'm not going to apologize for that. 
this is not like I said in one of my previous podcasts, where if you're trying to understand what the Dirac equation really means, that's a lot more complicated. This is not complicated for anyone that is has any form of competency with numbers. So let's start. And I want to do a big hat tip here to Dr. Lacey Hunt. Um, he has done a few interviews recently on Real Vision, Macro Voices with Vance Crow. Um, Macro Voices and Vance Crow ones are free. Real Vision is, I think it's $1 for a three-month trial at the moment, so it's basically free. Uh, he says broadly the same thing in all three. The most recent is the Real Vision one. I highly recommend listening to him. He's one of the world's most experts in, um, preeminent experts in, in monetary theory. And um, I had a, a call with him the other day because I had a, I just had some um, things I didn't quite, wasn't quite clicking for me. Um, we had a great conversation and he cleared up a lot of the um, uh, kind of little niggles that there were that I couldn't quite work out. So thank you very much, Dr. Hunt. Um, and as I said, please check out his stuff. It's, um, he's very eloquent in how he thinks through all of this. So one of the things I took from my conversation with Lacey was we actually have to start with what is money. Uh, and so money has three traits and it needs to, for something to be considered money, it has to satisfy all three. By the way, this is classic economic theory. It is not controversial. People, okay, everything has some controversy, but broadly people agree on this. Um, and the three things, and again, you can look this up in any economics textbook or online. One, medium of exchange. Two, store value. Three, unit of account. And it's really important to understand this. And, the, and why is it important? Well, because we have to understand what the word reserves mean. You hear about basically reserves, bank reserves, all the time. I'm not sure everyone, I'm sure many people do understand, but a lot of people wouldn't understand what they really mean because they're not legal tender. They're not money. And that's a you know important statement, so let's unpack it a bit. So let's understand how reserves um Basically, um, you know, they, 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 they're really credits at the Fed. So the Treasury issues debt, not the Fed, the US Treasury issues debt. It sells in an auction to the primary dealers, foreign domestic bidders. Uh, and they have to pay for the Treasuries. And they pay via reserves. You can't pay with a credit card. You can't pay with a bank transfer. You you must go via uh, what's called a depository institution in the US who has a master Fed account. So it's just a bank account with the Fed. And all the Fed ever does is create or destroy money in that account. It's a Fed credit. It's not money. Why? Well, it, it fails at two out of the three things that money needs to satisfy. It's not a medium of exchange. It's not a store of value. But it is a unit of account, i.e., you know, you know how much there is. And you can tell this, it's also, you go to JP Morgan's balance sheet. It's on JP Morgan's website. Anyone can go to it. Take you five seconds to find it. There's about 240 billion of, and, and I quote, deposits with banks, end quote. And then there's a footnote, and by the way, in any annual report, 
the most important things to read are always the footnotes. The footnote makes it very clear that deposits with banks means Federal Reserve banks. This is their reserves. It's about 240 billion. I think it's 242 billion at the end of 2019. It will be a very different number now. So these reserves are not money. JP Morgan cannot use the reserves to go and buy a building in Manhattan because they need new headquarters. Now they're a bank, so what they could do is lend money to someone to build the building. They could have a sale and lease back. All sorts of funky stuff can happen, but they cannot use the reserves directly to buy things or pay wages and stuff like that. And the reserves are there as a um, basically a, a provisioning mechanism. So if you have bad debts, they're a kind of a protection. If you have loans that uh, you don't get paid back on, so, you know, one of the things from the financial crisis was to increase the amount of reserves. Uh, so there's more of a cushion, you know, in, in if we have, you know, basically bad times or people start defaulting on loans. Now, there's lots of arguments on <clears throat> either way on how many reserves you need. Whether there's too much or too little in the system, we're not going to get into that here. <clears throat> okay, so... Keep, keep with JP Morgan as an example. So they have about 240 billion of reserves. And so they can use this Federal Reserve credit, which is really what it is. It's a liability of the Fed to JP Morgan, and they can use it to buy treasuries. So one of the questions I had was, why would JP Morgan bother buying or selling treasuries to the Fed if they're going to be paid with reserves? Well, they're buying most of them with reserves. So because I, you know, I thought, well, why would you... Um, buy something, why, why would you sell a US Treasury that's pretty liquid and get something that's in effect not money? Well, they're buying it with reserves, which they have to have at the Fed, um, based upon the size of their loan book and all this good stuff. And they know that the Fed's going to buy them back within days, weeks, months, years, whatever it is. It can really be days now. Um, again, there's lots of arguments on that, whether... If they're selling them back in three days, is that kind of, could you say that's a direct monetization of US debt? Well, if you look at the Federal Reserve Act or the, more importantly, the amendments in the 30s by, by Carter Glass, uh, as long as you have a market price set at auction um, for, for that transaction, so in the open market, there's no problem. There's no violation of the act. Uh, I would also argue, you know, with what the Fed's done recently with corporate credit junk bonds not that they bought many of them but they've wrapped it up in an spv with the treasury yeah there's ways around a lot of these things with a little bit of um creativity <clears throat> but if there is a rubicon in monetary policy it is this potential uh, if you cross over and directly fund uh, the u.s deficit i.e that means you do not go via primary dealers. There is no market pricing. And that's a, the big kind of Rubicon. If that happened, I think there would be very little debate that it's going to be banana republic time. Uh, inflation is coming. Um, and um, But that has not happened. It may have just happened in the UK. But of course, they're claiming it's, it's with half a billion dollars worth of pounds, of course. Um, they're claiming it's um, short term and it's just temporary. Well, I think we've heard that a few times before when it comes to monetary policy in the last 10 years. So we'll see what happens there. But really, <clears throat> it, even the Eurozone and the ECB 
compared to the Fed and the US, it doesn't really, yes, it matters, but it doesn't matter that much. It's not the world's reserve currency, the euro or the pound. Um, in terms of liquidity, the amount of trade, but you know, and just the amount of flows, it, it's just dwarfed by the dollar. The dollar is what matters most. And therefore, what the Fed does matters most. <clears throat> so, so JP Morgan, and again, I'm just using them because they're the largest bank in US. That's the only reason. Um, they use reserves to buy treasuries from uh, the treasury of the US, and then they're going to sell them to the Fed at some point later, one would assume making some form of spread, um, i.e. some form of profit, um, and basically get more reserves from that. Now, there's a misconception that... You, so, these... The banks don't need more reserves in order to lend more. We'll come to this more later but with, with the numbers, but broadly, the, the banks create money, not the Fed. They, they, they absolutely don't create money. They create Fed credits, these reserves. That's it. Um, now, one day, we may all have master Fed accounts, and then all of a sudden, the Fed can deposit into that account. Now, if you read Princes of the Yen or watch the documentary... Now, and by the way, I do not think this is conspiracy at all because we know central banks are working on digital versions of their currencies all across the world, like every major central bank is. And if we all had a master Fed account, the plan there really could be to literally stop banking and have one bank, the government. This would be... Um, well, more than out of control of central banking if it happened. Uh, it would probably be incredibly bad for the economy in the long run. Provision of capital, i.e. loans. Why would it be done well? There's no competition in the market. There's all sorts of bad things. What we actually need is more banks in the market. But the problem is with the yield curve as it is um, and regulatory costs, it's really hard for smaller banks. But the solution to a lot of the problems right now is actually to have many more banks that are smaller, potentially not for profits, that actually loan money to businesses that deserve to have money loaned to them. And now we'll talk about why that's the point. So we're going to talk about money supply, uh, monetary base, these things. So let's just understand um, what these things are. So the, the, the monetary base is controlled by the central bank, and it's just the amount of currency out there plus the reserves held at the central bank. So this is actually controlled by the central bank. So it's basically all money plus the reserves, because we're saying reserves aren't money. So if you multiply the monetary base by the money multiplier, you get the money supply. There's different forms of money supply, but let's keep it broadly simple. Now, the money multiplier is not controlled by central banks. And the money multiplier is simply how many dollars are created by banks, i.e. what's the total amount of um, credit they've given out for each dollar of reserves. So if I've lent out $10, I have $1 of reserves at the central bank. The money multiplier is 10. This is a really, really important metric. Now, another metric you hear about a lot is the velocity of money. And this is just the GDP, which people are fairly familiar with, divided by the money supply. So it's really basically how many times 
um, is that money turning over to produce the GDP. So therefore, if you just rearrange that, multiply both sides by money supply, the GDP equals the money supply times the velocity of money. And now we can just look into, we can just split GDP into two parts, average price paid, so price and quantity of goods and services bought. So just price, quantity, P and Q. So GDP equals P times Q. So P times Q equals money supply times velocity of money. This is the core equation in economics. This is not a controversial equation. How one interprets the equation can get controversial. But economists agree on this basic equation. If you, um, There's no point listening to the rest of this podcast if your only view in life is this equation is wrong. Um, we are making the assumption this equation is correct, but it's now how do we interpret the different component parts? And it's an incredibly simple equation. There's just two things, price times quantity equals money supply times velocity of money. That's it. There's nothing fancy in it. It's simple. So what's important is what stays constant when other things move up and therefore what other things must move up or down. That's really the key to whether we see inflation or not. It's no more complicated than that. You know, people that are, again, I'm I'm trying to use the simplest kind of, but, but still technical terms because I, like, like we talked about before, in some science programs, people try and simplify things so much that the explanation they give is just not in any way physical or indeed correct. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to go into 400 pages and this podcast to be 28 hours long. But you can just play with these and you can see all these metrics on the FRED website for the US and you know, broadly for most countries, the data is out there. I'm going to be quite focused on US, but you know, this applies elsewhere. Um, but because we talked about before world dollar liquidity and that whole cycle, the demand in the US from consumers is going to be incredibly important for the global recovery. Um, because if you remember, you know, having um, demand in the US means that you need to get imports, they're paid for with dollars, the world needs dollars, that's how dollars get around the world. And right now you've got a seizing up of that cycle. And by the way, that does need the US government to run a deficit. So often you're taught that, okay, well, price must go up when money supply goes up because quantity and velocity of money are broadly constant. Well, quantity is just demand, right? And then let's just, you know, just all forms of demand for goods and services. Um, and yeah, in normal times, that is broadly constant. But obviously right now it's not. Um, you know, the um, We're in the middle of a demand shock, so it's decreased a lot. Um, so Q has gone down a whole bunch. Um and the velocity of money um, is it used to be much more constant. So it was quite constant between 1960 uh, and about 1990s. Well, in, let's say the early 90s. It was about 1.8. So remember what velocity of money is, is GDP divided by money supply. So roughly 1.8. So money would roughly turn kind of 1.8 times a year in effect to create the GDP. In 1997, it peaked at about 2.2, so it was 1.8 for quite a few decades. It peaked at 2.2, now it's down to 1.4. So it's, it, and it's in freefall if you look at the chart. Uh, the chart is um, uh, on thread, so anyone can go and see it. Um, and 
the slightly annoying thing about a lot of these metrics is because they're based on GDP, they're quarterly metrics because we don't get uh, robust monthly GDP data and certainly not weekly. So a lot of these things, you're, you're, you're not going to get like the, the weekly data points that you can get for something like commercial industrial loans, for example. So this whole game is about, okay, well, different data is coming out. As often, the best data is the most lagging. <laughs> so what are the forward indicators we could look at? So you know, we can talk about that as well. Again, this is also why it's an inexact science and no one knows with 100% certainty. So we've had 30 years of decreasing velocity of money. I mean, that's, as far as I'm concerned, a fact. Um, and, um, yeah, and now, but we also have a demand shock. So Q has come down. And we know, which we can look, that the M1 money supply, so this is kind of the, um, uh, the, the Fed stopped reporting M0, but M1 is basically the closest forms to, to cash. And it's, it's gone from 4 trillion to 4.8 trillion in just three months. So it's about a 20% increase. And, but velocity money is trending down. And as I said, quarterly data for Q2 is not out, but it's likely going to be very weak. It, it could be as low as one point. Well, it's it's un, just under 1.4 at the moment. It may well go down to 1.2 or indeed uh, less. Um, I mean, there's a big shock. So it's plausible it even goes down 20%, and that would just cancel out um, the, the increase in M1. Um, I don't think it's going to go down that much, but we'll talk about that more because obviously demand's gone down too, so... So, you know, Q2 is not out yet. It's likely going to be very weak. That's going to be an important data point. We also know that GDP in Q2 will be, again, I'm just going to use a round number, minus 20% or worse, um, quarter on quarter. Um, again, it might be minus 30. We don't know, but it's going to be a bad number. But again, it doesn't matter the exact number for the purposes of this. And so... The key question, of course, is how is GDP going to recover? Everything's related, is the point. So if GDP is minus 20%, velocity of money, let's say it's minus 10%. So let's say it goes down to about 1.2. Um, then, um, then P multiplied by Q must be about minus 10%. Now... Retail sales were minus 15% in April, but that's probably the worst month. So for Q2, let's say that they're broadly minus 10% because it's going to get better in May and June. Uh, it's still probably, it'll still be negative year on year, but it won't be as bad as minus 15. Um, so therefore, P should be broadly flat right now. Again, these are just very high level numbers and broadly that's what we're seeing. Pricing is about flat, but trending downwards. So... But this is this is all you know known stuff, and so the point is is moving forwards. The key is therefore, what is the velocity of money? When will it find a bottom or a trough? Uh, and number two is obviously demand, which is Q in our equation: price times quantity equals money supply times velocity of money. Well, demand is still unknown. I mean, you have all this asinine debate about is it an L, a U, or W, or V, or people say well it's quantum it's like it's not linear and it's different parts of the economy improving at different rates which is almost certainly going to be the case um it's not just like a linear thing for everyone um but again if, if we're broadly in line with yeah unless this is a totally exceptional recession slash depression which maybe it is maybe it is just a complete v-shape and that's that 
Um, but most of the time you get some form of kind of meandering W, up, down, up, down, up, down, more downs, more ups. Like it tends to be what happens. You tend to have a process. Now, considering this has never happened before, well, it did in 1918. The world was pretty different back then. Um, you know, let's, you know, we, we should all, you know, we should be honest with ourselves, we don't know, but we can also look at data, as I said before, from places like China, then it's going to be places like Italy, um, uh, and then moving basically westwards across the world, ultimately the UK, US. Um, you know, then if, if trends are broadly similar uh, in that there's a permanent loss to consumption, which is what it looks like right now in China, but again, that might not be the case elsewhere. Who knows? Uh, again, this is not where you want to use one data point, you know, um, you know, I know for my own purposes, my family, we're definitely going out less, and that's not changing. And it's not for um, reasons of money. It's just just a shift in mindset. Now, I'm sure many people feel the same. I'm sure many people don't. You know, you can't come to conclusions based upon you know, yourself or a few people that you know. So, so. QE, and this is where people start to get things wrong, QE does not cause a continued increase in money supply. It can give a one-off boost as the money flows through the system, but it doesn't cause a continued um, increase because QE is, it, this is where people are going to go wrong. It's a balance sheet item, not an income statement item. So it's not, um, so therefore, it, it's kind of a one-off hit. So QE does, therefore, it does not cause continued inflation, i.e. price increase in our equation. Assuming that, of course, in, in this example, that Q is constant. Now, hence why you know the, the, the quantity and the demand is so important about how that recovers. So... We need to dive into the money multiplier now to really see what causes inflation. So money supply can be gigantically increased by banks in a permanent and sustained manner if they lend more. Now, one of the most famous examples of this, and again, yes, it is relevant if you're sitting in the US and if you think anything that happens outside the US is irrelevant to you, is not the case. Uh, US can sometimes have special uh, special situation because of its reserve currency status, but not always. And when it comes to things like this, it's consistent around the world. So in the uh, 70s and 80s, and again, just read the book uh, Princes of the Yen by Richard Werner. Uh, again, you may or may not agree with all his uh, more, let's say, out there theories. I think they're really good fun to debate and I have quite a lot of agreement with them. Um, but what is without a doubt in Japan is you had um, what's called window guidance in the 70s and 80s where, again, this isn't a term that everyone necessarily has heard, just like no one had heard of QE before of 2008. Um, but, well, I say no one, Europeans and Americans, people in Japan had. Um but basically, the central bank told banks, you must lend 20% more this quarter than last quarter, or whatever the number is. So, i.e., it was a sustained increase in lending. And therefore, 
remember what the money multiplier was. It's the dollars created by banks, i.e. the money created by banks via loans for each dollar of reserves. So they were basically told you, you, you must lend more and more and more and more. And as everyone knows of compounding, yeah, if you if you have to lend 8% more every quarter, yeah, that rapidly increases, actually leads to exponential growth. And so this is what happened. You had some um, massive inflationary shocks there in the 70s, uh, a little less in the 80s. Um, but there was a sustained increase in the money multiplier. Now, now we get to the crux of all of this and the key point. Are we in a similar situation now? So in Japan, um, and by the way, when all that window dressing, window guidance, sorry, stopped, inflation stopped. And as we all know, Japan's seen pretty much three decades of broadly zero inflation. Yes, sometimes it's a little up, sometimes there's a little bit of deflation, but it's broadly, yes, it's quite clearly massively lower than in, in um, other like large countries. So the question is, okay, so do banks, and again, let's just simplify the world to the US, just for the this discussion, but it's the same principles elsewhere. Okay, so first of all, well, the Fed has no um, window guidance like this. Like, they are not telling banks you must do X. Now, Maybe this is where it's going to go. But right now, banks, which are still private institutions in the US, yes, they're regulated by the Fed and other people, but right now, we are in uncertain times, and they don't want to lend. How do we know this? Well, we just need to look at, again, the US has incredible data. It's, it's, it's some, you know, we have weekly jobs numbers, you have just incredible amounts of data at all different time frames. It's by far the most robust data set I've seen, which is great because it's the largest economy. Again, you know, people can go on forever about the quality of data in China, but actually, you know, the quality of data in a lot of countries is very poor. Um, and I'm not saying that US doesn't fudge things sometimes, but broadly it's, you know, it's, it's high frequency and pretty robust and consistent. And resources like Fred are absolutely fantastic and they're free and they're easy to use. Um, and again, you'll never understand this stuff unless you go and look at it for yourself. There's there's no point listening to someone and then thinking you understand something. You've got to go and look at the charts yourself. So one of the key off, um, surveys that comes out in the US every quarter is the Senior Loan Officer Survey. And this is basically of loan officers in banks that lend and as in every recession, you're seeing the same thing now in the last survey. Oh, we're tightening our lending standards. Banks don't want to lend when there's higher risk, especially if you think about how low rates are. I mean, if I'm lending to you, well, let's say you're a big company uh, and you're borrowing at 2 or 3%, well, you know, that's um, not a great equation for a bank if there's so much uncertainty in the economy. Hertz and other large companies have just, you know, gone to chapter 11, um, you know, versus if I could get 10%, let's say, from you. And let's bear in mind, you know, in the 80s, um, well, 70s, 80s, early 90s, something like a 10, 15% interest, interest rate was not in any way abnormal. It was normal for, for even, uh, you know, very high quality companies. So the Senior Loan Officer Survey shows a tightening of credit standards. 
Um, now, one there is a little anomaly right now, which is the commercial industrial loans. This is a weekly data point. It spiked up massively. So this is all the uh, commercial industrial loans in the US. It spiked up gigantically uh, in March, um, having been, by the way, incredibly weak before COVID. It was pretty much flat year on year. Hadn't quite hit zero, but it was very close to zero growth, which is a sign the economy was slowing before any of this hit. Um, and um, so, but it shot up recently because a bunch of large companies that have what's called revolvers with um, so it's revol- revolving credit lines, which you, you don't always have to be pulling down. But a lot of companies went into basically panic mode and like, right, we need to get all the cash we can, access to all the liquidity we can, which was the right thing to do. So you saw a huge spike of uh, several hundred billion dollars very quickly. Um, you know, I, that's going to tail off. In fact, even in the last week, it looks like it started to, but we need more data points. But that's a weekly data point, so that's pretty good. And it's reported by the banks. The banks are regulated, should be pretty accurate. Um, it's one of my favorite metrics, that one. But we can kind of ignore that bit for the purposes of this conversation because it was really a different dynamic that led to that. And so really banks want, what they're saying is, well, we want a higher risk premium. I.e. we want to get compensated more for lending you money. And borrowers, uh, i.e. companies, and so whether it's a big company or a small company, well, they can't or won't pay higher risk premium. Um, they uh, Many small businesses realize getting more debt is not the solution to the debt. Um, now, a lot of large companies have no, uh, may have much less choice when it comes to this. Um, but, but the large companies will only... Um, want to borrow if it's a very low rate. They can't afford it if it's higher. Well, the banks don't want to lend you at that rate. Yeah. At the end of the day, we've got a minus 20 or minus 30 or whatever it's going to be percent on GDP for Q2. Yeah. It is impossible that that isn't a solvency event for a whole bunch of companies. How many? No one knows. But we're through the liquidity angle. That's done. The Fed, and, and again, it did its job. Its job is to provide liquidity in times of need. It can lend and not spend. That's another thing I'm taking from Dr. Lacey Hunt. Uh, it's a catchy little line. But they can't prevent insolvency. Again, Raoul Powell's talked about this a lot. Um, and we're starting to see it, right? You know, it's not just layoffs, it's, you know, entire industries changing, like car rental. Well, if you're not flying, um, I mean, this is like one of the, this is it's kind of incredibly simple thinking, but well, people are gonna fly less, which means, Less rental cars. Almost all rental profits are made at airports. The ones in cities are, are like useless for them. I'd looked into this years ago when I was at Bain and Company. So they make all their profits at airports. Um, and that's going to get hit. Well, 20% of new cars are sold to car companies. Well, they're not going to need the new cars. So they're going to start selling them. They already have. That puts pressure on used car prices. And that puts pressure on car prices. I mean, all these things are so interlinked. Um... You know, so you know, the world is a complex, non-linear system. Yeah, you know, originally I'm a physicist, right? So I get non-linear systems. You're kind of used to it. Um, you know, things don't go up on nice, perfect, straight lines or whatever. Like you know, it's the whole point of a differential equation. You, the equation itself changes with time. So, unless the money multiplier, i.e., unless banks start to lend sustainably 
more and more and more and more every month. There can't be inflation. Now, that might happen. Maybe they will. Maybe uh, people who think there's going to be a fast recovery and banks start lending again. Okay, yeah. If, if, if the recovery uh, is like a V-shape and goes beyond where we were in um, Q4-19... So the point is, it doesn't matter. I mean, if, if let's just say, just for the sake of argument, GDP was 100 in Q419. Okay, and we go, and, and Q1 uh, was maybe going to be about, what, 96, something like that. And then Q2 goes down to 75, right? Again, the units don't matter. Okay, well, the key thing now is, when do we get back to the 100? That's what matters. How fast? Now, if we go from 75 and then Q3 is all back up to 85, well, yeah, that's a massive quarter-on-quarter growth. But it, it, it then may well start to taper off. So I think it's a very interesting next few months. You know, that's, you know, because we could go to 85 because, again, there will be some pent-up demand. Some people would have things that stop working and they couldn't go to the shops to buy it. Like, yeah, th- th- there will be some pent-up demand. But if there's sustained change in our habits as human beings... And, um, and and for example, how we go to work, more people remote working, I don't need to be in a fancy office, like there's lots of things which we don't know, but we need everything to go back to normal just to get back to the 100%, because oh, the 100 in our, in our example, because that 100 was fueled by massive amounts of debt, lots of people overextended, people just spending like there's no tomorrow. And whilst that may have felt great at the time, are we really going to go back to that? Because we may well go back to um, 90, 95. By the way, that's still going to be worse than a, way worse than a normal recession, and that might be the new normal. So, you know, there's a lot more to it than just saying it's going to have a V-shape. Like, a V-shape to what? You could have an initial V, which we will have. Almost certainly, because if you go down that fast and then things get opened up again, it's going to go up fast. But what's the shape of that after? So all these letters are just stupid. They just annoy me. Um, So, yeah. And banks will, if they really think the world is getting less risky, more certain, they will deploy capital to people and lend money. That will increase the money multiplier. You know, um, if we increase that, we are increasing the money supply. Um, and, you know, again, once we get back to a relatively um, stable demand, a quantity, therefore price would go up. Um, and, um, well, all velocity of money does. So there's two metrics to really watch. Number one, uh, as we talked about velocity of money. So what we're looking here is for a basically a bottom or a trough. So, as we said, we're at 1.4 now. Let's see what it goes down to. I mean, it, I think in Q2 it, it almost certainly has to go down a whole bunch um, because the numerator GDP is, has been crushed and the money supply, uh, which is the denominator, has gone up. So, yeah, velocity money has to be a really, really bad number, or bad as in low number. Um hey, maybe it goes below one. Let's see what it is in Q2. But it's going to snap back after. Really, what's more important is what is this in Q4? What is it in Q1 2021? We don't know. Anyone that says they know is lying. We can all have models. We can have views. Um, 
But I think it's fairly safe to say is if we don't get back to 100, in our example on GDP, so if we're not getting back to Q419 levels, um, then it seems unlikely that we're going to have um, you know, a velocity of money turning around and raging upwards. But let's see what happens. It could be a very long plateau. As I said, it was, it was um, incredibly stable for decades in the middle of the last century. So that's number one. Uh, and number two, of course, is the money multiplier. So we want to look for a sustained increase. And we can proxy the money multiplier because velocity of money, as I said, it's due to GDP. We get GDP on a quarterly basis. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, you, you can't calculate velocity of money. I'm sure people have models to, to try to on a real-time basis. But the kind of official velocity of money is every quarter. But a money multiplier, we can um, substitute, we can have a proxy. The, the Fed's kind of stopped reporting it, December 19, but but you can look at different things. For example, you know, you could look at bank credit. Um, bank credit's, um, there's about $14 trillion of bank credit right now. Uh, and you can just divide that by the reserves, um, which are about, um, uh, what three three point two trillion at the moment? So you get about five on 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 that version. Again, you can use different ways. What matters is the trend on these things, not the exact using the exact calculation as per a textbook. Like at the end of the day, it has bank credit in the numerator, reserves as denominator. This is good enough for me, and that data is out like weekly, so that's great. So actually, our first sign is going to be money multiplier, looking for a sustained increase in this. And just as an aside, there's another thing that the people get just incredibly wrong because they don't bother looking at the numbers, but they think banks lend out like 10 times the credit for each dollar of deposits. And this is just nonsense. Like there's 14 trillion of deposits in banks in the US and there's about 14 trillion of loans. It's about a one-to-one. Um, so again, it's, the data's all there. It's reported weekly, in fact. Uh, interestingly, what's been happening in the last couple of months is the deposits have been rocketing up much faster than the credit that's been taken out. Again, people are hoarding cash. Why? Because of uncertainty. If you're hoarding cash, it means you're not spending cash, whether an individual or a company. You may spend in the future, but right now you're not. The question, of course, and what will define the recovery is when will people start spending it? So again, you can look at the total deposits in US banks on a weekly basis. And again, this is another really nice data point. So yeah, I'm just trying to illustrate here how without, you know, one can, with an hour's work, you could set yourself up with bookmarks to Fred for all the key charts. You can check them once a week. Uh, you should listen to people like Steve Van Meter on YouTube, who is always looking at these charts and has done for years, just constantly looking at them and checking and and, you know, again, these charts tend to, well, what happens in macro is things move at a snail's pace. And then suddenly everything happens at once. I mean, just think what happened in March, right? You had, yes, people have been calling for recessions or not recessions and whatever, but it doesn't matter. Then all of a sudden, everything suddenly happened. And if you weren't positioned correctly, it's impossible to get into the right trades. So you, you, so in macro, you, you, you've often got to be, you know, uh, you have a thesis, you're ahead of, 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 of the market, um, and you may be wrong, right? And then you'll lose money. Um, but if you're right, you will probably still lose money for a while, and then it will suddenly come good. Um, so it's actually a very stressful way of investing. Um, 
Okay, so let's wrap this up. So, so what? What does this all mean? So, so QE in itself is not inflationary. Okay, we're not creating a sustained increase in uh, the money supply, and this is evidenced uh, by things like the um, the money multiplier. In fact, is going down at the moment. So, you know. QE is not inflationary. The reserves at the Fed are not money. They're not legal tender. JP Morgan or Bank of America or whoever can't go out and use them to buy whatever they want. They don't circulate. So just because... And by the way, the Fed doesn't actually print money either because it's not creating money. It's creating Fed credits. So this whole printing money, two words, is... It's kind of asinine. I completely get why people use it. It's a nice um, soundbite. Mainstream media like it. Anyone that's a, a gold bug or Bitcoin bug or whatever, they're always going to use it. They have all the imagery of printing presses and all this stuff. If the Fed were printing money, everything I've said is out the window. Um, and as uh, Lacey Hunt says, it's banana republic time. Because if you're not getting market pricing on those treasury auctions, then before you know it, you're going to have printed far too much. There's no market checkpoint in there that keeps all this under control. Um, and again, like um, one can argue about, well, US can't repay this debt and it's never going to do it. And well, maybe it's true, but it's also the world's reserve currency. Um, and also every other country pretty much, apart from a few of the really well-run countries that are much more frugal, um, you know, uh, are in the same boat. Okay, so inflation comes from an increase in the money multiplier, which means there's more money supply. So, and of course, if there's more demand as well, this is a further kicker. So let's, if you're going to look at anything, and you can, on a weekly basis, look at the money multiplier. Find out your way of working it out, different ways you can do it. But as long as you're consistent, that's what matters. They're all going to show broadly the same trends. So key things to watch, velocity of money, money multiplier. But also, don't lose uh, sight of other things to watch. So monthly, we get things like PPI, CPI, import-export prices, various inflation metrics. Uh, I say various. Most countries have so many inflation metrics, it's just stupidly confusing. Um, and it, <laughs> And they have massaged all these inflation metrics to help Central banks show what they want to show. We've talked about that before. Um, but it is what we have, right? So, and again, don't just focus on US, but look at Asia, look at Europe. Right now, these metrics are all showing the same thing. Um, you know, there may be the odd economy, commodity economy here and there that has different dynamics. You know, Australia or Brazil, like, um, you know, depending on what's say, happening with oil or, you know, iron ore prices and, and so on and so forth. But, but broadly... You know, if, if you're looking at the, the economies I that matter most for macro, you're talking about China, Japan, Korea, um, it, it, in uh, Asia, um, you know, the major economies in Europe, so uh, Germany, France, um, uh, Italy, Spain, UK, sure, and then US. And that's going to give you a pretty good uh, view. I mean, it's obviously the world's largest economies there too. Um, 
And again, right now the trends are quite similar, but it'll be very interesting in the next few months what starts to happen to PPI and things like that. Um, you know, you can obviously keep an eye on oil. It's still vastly lower than where it was. It's a big, uh, you know, if, if oil was $100, things are obviously more expensive to make than if it's $10. So again, this is going to give you some clues. Um, and looking at time spreads further out in the oil market can maybe could you give you clues now as it can tango backwardation. Um, but again, there's nothing conclusive at the moment. Um, but as always, like my plea to everyone is be curious. If this is interesting, this last hour, well, spend the time to recreate what I've talked about. Listen to it again, write it down. Um, go, go, go and find the charts, do your own analysis. Maybe you don't agree with some stuff, that's fine. But but come to a view based upon, you know, having a, a little bit more knowledge of the system. And I'm just trying to get out there as, um, is, you know, just a, a framework to think of, of all this. Um, and again, and if someone just blindly says to you, well, QE is printing money, it must be inflationary, obviously. Well, I guarantee you they don't know any of what we've just talked about. Um, sometimes people have an agenda, right? We all have agendas and biases. Um, but, you know, what I try and do is just be objective. Um, and because in investing in macro, it's not about, well, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, in a 20-year time period, you're going to be judged by how well you've, uh, what your returns are and how you've managed risk. Um, okay, so let's leave it there. So again, things I really uh, think you should do is listen to uh, Lacey Hunt's videos. So that's on Real Vision, Macro Voices, and with Advanced Crow. Highly recommend listening to Steve Van Meter on YouTube. He's got a few thousand subscribers. He should have a million subscribers. Um, yeah, it's you're getting three videos a week from him. Um, they're unedited. Him talking for about half an hour each time. Data rich, um, and yeah, this is exactly the type of video I think is super interesting. Um, and um, and yeah, stay curious. Look at the different forms of data. And if look, if you have any questions, just DM me on Twitter. They're open. Uh, at Darky999. Um, that's probably the best way to reach me, in all honesty. Okay, thanks very much for listening, and we will cover. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to cover in episode 11, so I might do another poll, see what you guys want. <laughs>